We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey there, math fans. Uh, damn, that, that didn't sound nearly as cool as I thought it might. But if you came for cool, you're in the right place because data is cool. Uh, welcome to the first ever edition of Nick's Film School Math Class. Most of you know me. I'm XJ. I'm here with my good buddy, Jeff. We are here to talk about data analytics and answer all of your questions related to data or anything else. Jeff, who you may know as Frank Barrett 119 on Twitter, and I are also representing a brand new podcast that we started called Hot Hand Theory, where we talk about the Knicks, but it's really about the entire NBA. Um, and we break things down from an analytical perspective. We try to make data more accessible. Jeff, I'm super excited to be doing this. Uh, so appreciative to KFS for having us. How are you doing, Jeff? How are you feeling? I was like a 10 of 10. I would say I'm like a 9.99 out of 10 just because I didn't get to hear you call me brilliant, which you call me every single time when you introduce me on our show. And like, I don't know, it's just like a nice, it's like a nice ego booster to hear how, how brilliant you think I am, even though that may or may not be true. Yeah, I, I, I saved that for hot hand theory. Um, I, 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 th- I thought you wouldn't notice that I didn't carry it over over here, but uh, Jeff noticed everything. He notices everything. And that's why, that's why we do what we do. <laughs> I've, got the, uh, I've got the eye test. You've got the numbers. You know, like We both are good at both, but I, I do have that acute awareness. That's totally right. That's totally right. Um, GMAC, the great producer GMAC, has elected to get us started by uh, asking... Um, a really interesting question. And the first question coming from Nick's Film School is, hey guys, first time, long time. Uh, (laughs) I love the first time, long time, of course. Question, who would you say is the most underrated player in the NBA based on the data? What a question. That is like... And, and and to to just let all of you know, um, GMAC did not give us a heads up about this question. He did not tell us ahead of time. He's just like, I get a question and I'm going to start it off. I'm going to start you guys off with a really interesting data specific question. Um, this is a tough one. 
Jeff, are there any names that come to mind? I have a couple of guys in mind. I'm not sure where where I want to go, but do you have any 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 specific names that are coming to mind? So I have two names. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a star, and then I'm gonna throw out you know a role player that I think should be getting more due. Um, the star I'm gonna talk about is Shea Gilgis Alexander. Now, I think everybody knows that Shea is really good. Like he gets tons of props. Everybody talks about, Oh, like small market. Nobody talks about him enough, but really a lot of people know how good SGA is. I don't think anybody knows that EPM actually has him as the most impactful player in the NBA so far this season. Like if EPM had to give out an MVP through the first quarter of the season, SGA would be the MVP. Um, the film backs it up. I mean, you know, as everybody knows, the Thunder have basically been on a youth movement for, uh, since, since they lost Paul George and Russell Westbrook. So that was 2019. So four, four seasons now. Um, and they've, they have all these draft picks. They have a bunch of young talent. They've got Chet Holmgren. Everybody knows about Jalen Williams. Everybody knows about Josh Giddy. And there's kind of this implication that like, okay, the Thunder are 15 and seven and second in the West. And they are that because of all of this youth, this collection of youth. And while there is some truth to that, I didn't even mention Isaiah Joe, who could actually be the most underrated player in the league in the sense of he's just really good and nobody even knows who he is. But (laughs) I digress. Um, The truth of the matter is there are levels to this because SGA is, aside from Chad Holmgren, way better than everybody else on the team. He is the number one reason that the Thunder are kind of a fringe contender if you just look at the records. Um, It's reasonable to make him the MVP of the league. and. I I think we need to start appreciating him a, appreciating him a bit more. I think that's a great answer. Just to clarify for our audience, EPM is estimated plus minus. It is an impact metric uh, done by Dunks and Threes. It is one of the the best, the most accurate, most precise, um, the best predictive value impact metric out there. Um, and Jeff and I reference EPM a ton. So you may have heard about it. You may not have. Just to clarify, that's what EPM is. I think your answer is great. What's really interesting is that (laughs) three of the guys that come to mind and you actually mentioned all of them are all on the thunder. What, what it like, I just realized that three of the guys that came to mind immediately for me are all on the Oklahoma city thunder. Uh, Were your, were your, were your three guys, Joe Holmgren and SGA? Absolutely. Yeah. Those are my three guys. Honestly, I was going to go with Isaiah Joe. I think that it's just, People don't realize what Isaiah Joe does in, you know, around 20 minutes a game, I think is what he's averaging. Um, EPM really likes him, but I think he's not even considered like a really high level role player. Uh, EPM would have him in the top 75 of the NBA in terms of impact. Isaiah Joe shoots lights out. And if anybody who knows me, anytime I've been on any KFS pod, um, any stream, anything else, I love shooting. I love shooting. I think spacing the floor is critical. I love the fact that three points are more than two points. Um, and any player who's going to shoot 44% on extremely high volume um, and playing around you know, guys like SGA who can completely collapse the paint and another big who can spread, spread them out uh, the, you know, the, way that <clears throat> the way that Chet Holmgren does. That's that's a critically underrated player. So my guy might be Isaiah Joe. Another guy I would mention uh, is what I'll say, one I'll say really quickly. It's going to be a surprise to anyone listening. Anyone listening is going to be completely blown away by this. 
I probably would say a guy named Lowry Markkinen. <laughs> um, and we talked about this on Hot Hand Theory, actually, uh, an episode that we recorded today. And so you know the answer to this, but of the top 25 guys in estimated plus minus, there is only one who has less lower than a 25 usage. And that player is, is Lowry Markkinen. Um, and why does that matter? It matters because Lowry is able to have such an incredible impact on both ends of the court. Honestly, uh, we were talking about this as well. Utah is terrible on defense and offense without Lowry Markkinen. To have the impact that he has on both ends and to have a sub-25 usage is kind of unheard of. And I think that he is considered like a good player, a really good player. He's not considered an elite player, a top 20 player. And I think he is over the course of you know a season and a fifth we're at right now, he should be considered in that top 20 to 25 easily. Um, and I think he's just not considered such. I think that would be a little weird to some people and people in the, in the audience might be, uh, people in the audience might be cringing at this point. If <laughs> but trust me, Lowry Markin is a hugely impactful player. And a word you use today about marketing that I think is really important is additive. Um, and for people who might not understand why that's important, think back to like the 2011 to 2014 Miami Heat. You know, you had Wade and you had LeBron and you had Bosch. And there was this implication, you know, they're over under the first year they were together was something preposterous, like 65 and a half. There was there was an insinuation that they were just going to run rampant over the league. And I'm sh- in a way they kind of did. They made the finals four straight years. They won two championships. They probably should have won three championships. Um, but I think it's fair to say that they were less than the sum of their parts. The whole uh, was actually kind of underwhelming. The 2012, 2013 heat, the team that won uh, 27 games straight, that streak that everybody remembers that was really the only truly great Miami Heat team. That was the only time they were the number one overall seed. They were the number two seed in both 2011 and 2012 behind the Chicago, Tom Thibodeau Chicago Bulls. And then in 2014, they were the number two seed behind the Paul George-led Indiana Pacers. That It's really, really hard with players whose skill sets overlap to have to maximize all the players on your team. And so when you have a guy like Lowry Markkinen... Or when you have a player on the Knicks like Emmanuel Quickly, who is able to be his best self while another great player can also be his best self, that makes you more valuable, even if the even if by your eye test, it doesn't seem like you're as great as a guy who can do all this stuff with the ball in his hands. You know, like if you watch Lowry Marketing and maybe you watch Prime Bradley Beal, an incredibly skilled player with the ball in his hands. I think most people's intuition would say, oh, well, Bradley Beal's better. He can do more stuff with the ball in his hands. But what makes marketing great and guys of Markkinen's mold great is that when Markkinen is playing his absolute best, he could play with another star and that star can be his best self as well. Um, so I think that's really important to remember the word, the word additive is something you want to think about when you're thinking about team building in general, you want to think about two things. How good is this player and how good can the other players on the court with this player be when they're on the court and Lowry Markkinen pretty much defines that. Yeah, I think that's such a critical point and reflective of the way that you and I both look at the game. Um, one might call it an analytics, <clears throat> excuse me, an analytics-driven perspective, but I think it's 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 really spot on, and I think that that's 
really part of the reason why I love Lowry so much and why we love guys like Emmanuel quickly so much because of that additive nature and, and the fact that other guys can be their best selves while they're on the court as well. Um, we are ready to pivot to whatever questions you guys all have out there for us. Let's see what the first one uh, that we have coming. Jessica Elsner, XJ rules. Always happy to see him host. Let's go Knicks. Jessica, thank you so much. That is very, very kind of you. And I very much appreciate it. Um, I don't know that I'm the best host, but you know, I'm, I'm getting better. I'm warming up. I'm warming up. Uh, do you want to grab this question, Jeff? Do you want to ask the, 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 the second question from Jessica? Sure. Jessica asks, this is a really good question, by the way. Um, I'm not as natural a host. So, you know, for if, if anyone's not watching, I apologize. Her question is, which players have great looking data, but fail the eye test and vice versa? How often do you think data can be deceiving? Um, I'm incredibly long winded and also just honestly, I'm blown away by this question. So I'm just going to pass it over to XJ as, as this is such a good question. I'm just (laughs) XJ. Can you just, I don't even mean filibuster. Can you just give your honest assessment for a minute while I just think, cause the, yeah, this is great. No, this is, this is a tremendous question. Jessica, uh, you know, has tons of experience working with data as well. So of course she would ask this really thought provoking question. Um, great looking data, but fail the eye test. I don't know there's a, are there, there's a couple guys who come to mind. I, I, we were talking about this player a little bit earlier. Um, Yusuf Nurkic, uh, might be one, but I, I think it's like the current version of Yusuf. I don't know if people are watching, you know, when they're watching Phoenix, they're really paying close attention to Nurkic, but he does a lot of the dirty work and his usage as is at a career low. Um, he doesn't score very effectively. He's not a good three point shooter, although he has had some good seasons where he shot well from three. He's not a good shooter from the mid range. Um, you know, his, his turnover rate rate is relatively high for a center who doesn't handle the ball much. So I think if you're watching Nurkic, you might be like, yeah, this guy's not, this guy's not very good. However, he is at an EPM of 2.9 this year, which is 92nd percentile in the NBA. He is the complete and utter anchor for their defense in Phoenix. Not that they have a great defense, but the only reason they're really passable, I believe, is because of Yusef Nurkic. He is in the 90th percentile in offensive and defensive rebounding. And as Knicks fans, we know how important rebounding is. And when you have somebody who's dominating the boards on both sides, that's really important. And the thing about Nurkic is that he gets valuable rebounds. He gets rebounds that other centers might not get. He boxes out, he fights, he does the dirty work, he gets his positioning. Um, and he does all of that. And a lot of that stuff is unheralded. So I think that that's a guy who I would cite as somebody who may not look at, by the eye test as good as they are in terms of their impact. So that's, that's, that's like the first name that comes to mind, probably because we talked about him earlier today, Jeff. But um, do you have anybody? So... This answer might be a little bit of a cop out, but I think it's going to, from an overall process standpoint, help Jessica. I think just anybody who's an elite role player who does things that aren't scoring is probably going to be underrated by the eye test. So you look at you look in just the EPM top twenty five. The three names that jump out to me are Derek White, Jalen Suggs, and um, Scotty Barnes. You know, we just, we just, the Knicks just played the Raptors last night. And that was, that was something of a performance, allowing 130 points to that team that can't shoot threes. And I feel like you watch Scotty Barnes and you know, he's good at all these different things, but nothing really jumps off the page, you know? And I think it's easy to just be like, okay, yeah, I mean, 
he's okay, but is he as good as fill in some player who's a bit more polished with the ball in his hands? Um, I think those types of players are just always going to fall. They're going to be underrated by not just the casual fan, just most fans, you know, Jalen Suggs, can't really do much yet with the ball in his hands. He's not much of a shooter. He's still a really good athlete, but overall his offensive game, you know, he needs to grow. EPM has him as the number one, most impactful defender in the NBA. That is everything. And you just don't focus on defense as much as you're going to focus on offense. So, you know, Jessica, this was such a great question, but I, I do think that if you're looking for guys that are probably going to be underrated, you want to look at the really, really good role players who can help a team in ways that allow your best scorers to be their best selves. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And this also represents how we really try to be unbiased because I, from a biased perspective, I would not want to say Scotty Barnes. <laughs> um, for, for those who know, I have a, a bit of a, a bit of a battle going on with Toronto Raptors fans, but Scotty Barnes is really good. Scotty Barnes is really good and may not uh, seem to the eye as good as he actually is. Um, I want to just quickly answer Jessica's other question about how often can data be deceiving? I think data can be deceiving very often. I think some of these metrics that we look at are highly flawed and subject to noise, especially in cases like right now when we're early in the season and we only have 20 games of sample size. The 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 metrics are going to be extremely subject to noise and we can't just go by them and just say, you know, this is the ranking of players that we have in the NBA based on where they rank on EPM. Um, at the same time, I would also say that the eye test, in my opinion, is more deceiving than the data. And so we're, we're talking about flawed ways to judge players and to judge impact and productivity. And all of it is flawed, really. So I think we just have to do our best to combine all of our best tools, whether that includes film study, whether that includes data analysis, um, combine all the best tools that we have and and, and do our best with that. But I think that both can be flawed and and, and pretty, you know, pretty tremendously so in, in a lot of cases. That that one's for you, Jeff. Another one. Yeah, for Jessica. thanks, Jeff. When I was still on Twitter, you were a favorite follow. Thanks for the answer. That's so nice. I appreciate that. You know, I... I mean, I don't know how many people know this, but my Frank Barrett Twitter account, that's not actually my name. Um, I created it just to, I just basically wanted to focus on the Knicks. I just, I've always liked the Knicks. My parents um, have been Knicks fans my whole life. My older brother um, was growing up and I just was sick of everything else. I just wanted to focus on the Knicks and I didn't have any followers and I direct messaged John Knicks film schools, John, and was just like, Hey man, I, love your post game show, you know, trying to do this. What do you think? And he was just like, don't worry about anything. Just do the best you can. And, you know, hang in there. And I, yeah, it was so cool. It was just so cool to me that he even took the time to give a thoughtful response. And I kind of haven't looked back. So I really appreciate that. And I, I do the best I can. Thanks as always, Jessica Mensa, big dog, the goat Mensa. Uh, he dropped a question. Also, Jalen Brown passes the eye test and always fails the impact metric exam. How do we forget? See, this is why Mensa is coming up clutch. How do we forget Jalen Brown? Jalen Brown is the answer, I feel like. For, at least for me, I think Jalen Brown, when I think of overrated NBA basketball players, I think of Jalen Brown. And, and the, the reason I didn't think of Jalen Brown is because he's overrated by the standard 
at which, you know, he gets all these accolades, you know, second team, all NBA, uh, all star, a lock to make the all star team year after year, the highest paid player in the NBA, which, you know, that was due to circumstances, not really to his value. But um, yeah, I think that he's just considered amazing as like a superstar level player. And I think he's he's really good. I think Jalen Brown's really good. I don't think I think he's multiple standard deviations away from a superstar level player. So I think that's a great comment. Anything you want to say about Jalen Brown? Yeah. I mean, we got, um, I don't think he's similar to clay Tom or to Jalen Brown's player. Well, I just spoil the lead. Um, we got, <laughs> we, we talked a little bit about clay Thompson, our last hot hand theory episode. And I don't know if you saw, but we got some pushback about not, you know, you know about some clay Thompson related things. And, I feel like the conversation we had there and the Jalen Brown discussion, it's very applicable because, and they're, they're very comparable because it's okay to call a really good player overrated. You can be overrated and still be really good. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. And I feel like there's such a negative connotation around the word overrated that people just immediately go blind. They're, they're just like, Oh my God, you think this, I know he's really good. He can do all these things. And it's just like, okay, I agree that Jalen Brown is a good basketball ma- player, maybe even a very good basketball player, but relative to how much he's paid, relative to, oh, they've got Tatum and Brown in back-to-back drafts. And it's like, okay, let's not put Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown in the same, they're not in the same universe, you know? And it's just like, okay, the way people talk about Jalen Brown and his relative relative to his impact for the Boston Celtics, there's a very real argument that in their elite starting lineup, Jalen Brown is the least impactful player in their starting lineup. Now, again, people are going to hear that and go blind with rage. Like, Oh my God, you think he's the worst player on the Boston Celtics? This is a very unique situation. They're a super good team with five very, very impactful players. And a lot of the good things that Jalen Brown does, Jason Tatum just does them better. And so you want supporting pieces around that. You need a secondary creator. And what Jalen Brown does is important. Again, not taking away the importance from what he does, the things Drew Holiday and the things Derek White and the th- things Chris Stapp's Porzingis do are more additive, less diminishing returns. And therefore, it's not super crazy to be like, okay, yeah, maybe Jalen Brown is the fifth most important or the fifth most impactful player on the Boston Celtics right now. I would have to concur. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I think that's well said. We, we agree. We agree a lot. What's up, Knicks fans? Quick break to tell you about our new sponsor, Prize Picks. Not only are they the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America, but they're also the easiest and most exciting way to play. Instead of battling thousands of other players, including pros and sharks, it's just you against the numbers, picking more than or less than on a two to six player stat projection. With basketball season fully underway, you can now pick combo projections across football and basketball from the Specials League. This is a league created specifically for combo projections that include two or more players from different sports or leagues. For example, take Jalen Brunson over in points or Julius Randle over in rebounds and combine it with two NFL picks like Lamar Jackson over in rushing yards or Zach Wilson over in interceptions. Prize Picks is a really simple way to play. Prize Picks offers weekly promotions that can lead to big payouts. Like on Taco Tuesday each Tuesday, Prize Picks discounts select player projections up to 25% to provide even more value. Prize Picks now offers Apple Pay for quick and easy deposits into your account all basketball season. 
you know what to do. Go to prizepicks.com slash KFS and use code KFS for a first deposit match up to $100. Again, that's prizepicks.com slash KFS and use code KFS for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, it's daily fantasy sports made easy. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. BKG, Ben Kim Gurvey, what's up, man? Nerds, <laughs> happy Hanukkah, plus big congrats. Thank you so much, Ben. Uh, looking forward uh, to watching you here. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. BKG is super supportive always and uh, the, the right guy to, to, to give us some help here on the on the data side of things. Um, BKG, with the question, do you have any favorite metrics that focus on specific functions as opposed to roll up or aggregate me- uh, metrics like the E-series? Huh. Uh, it's a good question. Um, metrics that focus on specific functions. I, I mean, yeah. Do you, do you want to go Jeff? Yeah, I'll just jump in. Um, one thing I think gets underrated by a lot of people is you can pretty much look at any part of basketball that you're interested in and look at how the team performs at that aspect with and without the player you're trying to rate. And that's probably going to be a more accurate way of judging their impact in that aspect of the game than looking at the direct stat itself. So like an example to me would be rebounding, right? Most people are going to look at rebound or most people are going to think about rebounding and be like, okay, how many rebounds a game does this person at average? And that's only telling you a, a really small part of how impactful a rebounder somebody actually is because a lot of direct rebounds are actually the result of things other people on the court are doing. And that's something that not a lot of people know. They're just like, Oh, I'm trying not to say the name because this is a Knicks, you know, this is a, I'm trying not to say the name. I'm trying to think of any other example of a guy who gets a lot of rebounds and isn't actually that good a rebounder, but whatever. Uh, Julius Randle, for example, gets overrated very heavily as a rebounder for the New York Knicks. He gets a lot of rebounds that are just super replaceable. And so there's this idea that like, oh, it's late in the game and Randall's not playing super well, but we need his size for rebounding. And it's actually like, okay, but he doesn't ever box anybody out. He He's one of the worst box out, boxer outers. I don't even know what you would say there. In the league, he just he's always ball watching. He's always just standing there waiting to get the rebound. And it's actually Mitchell Robinson 
who averages way fewer defensive rebounds a game than Julius Randle, who is more responsible for the Knicks elite defensive rebounding. So if I was going to try and assess these two as rebounders, I wouldn't, I don't think looking at rebounds game is actually useful. I think looking at how the team rebounds with these guys on the court and off the court is actually more telling. And in four years on the Knicks, the Knicks have never once been worse rebounding with Julius Randle off the court than on the court. They've just, it's always been a neutral or better thing. Whereas last season, Mitchell Robinson, when he was on the court, the Knicks had the highest defensive rebound percentage. And when he was on the bench, they had the lowest defensive rebound percentage. And it's just like, okay, I know he doesn't get a ton of rebounds, but they're missing his box outs tremendously. A great example of this would be Roy Hibbert. If people remember Roy Hibbert for the Pacers, everybody always laughed at this big dude, seven, two, seven, three, huge wide frame. And he averaged like six rebounds a game at his prime for the, those couple seasons when the Pacers were really good. And the assumption was, oh, he's he must be a really bad rebounder. But he wasn't. He was just busy clearing out the rebounds for his teammates. And that's why they always had a really high defensive rebounding percentage when he was on the court. The modern example would be Steven Adams. You know, everybody remembers Russell Westbrook getting those triple doubles. He was getting those triple doubles because Steven Adams was clearing out the box outs. Most of Russell Westbrook's rebounds were actually very replaceable and Pretty much anybody could have gotten them if Stephen if you have Stephen Adams, you know, taking out multiple people trying to get the offensive rebound. So that's where I would start. I would look at how the team performs with this guy on the court and how how they perform with him off the court, and go from there. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I totally agree with that. I think there's a second spectrum uh, stat called adjusted rebound percentage, which calculates rebound percentage uh, rebounds divided by rebound chances minus deferred rebound chances. So this tries to account for some of what you were just talking about, Jeff. The fact that you know there are some rebounds that are deferred, <laughs> and when I think of deferred rebounds, I do think of Stephen Adams <laughs> deferring rebounds to Russell Westbrook. Um, but really, like I am a big proponent of when when it comes to trying to understand impact of top down metrics as opposed to bottom up. And by that, I mean, when I say top-down metrics, it's metrics that start with the scoreboard. So we talk a lot about on-off ratings. Um, we talk about adjusted plus-minus. We talk about something called regularized adjusted plus-minus, which is the foundation for a metric like EPM. Um, these are the metrics that I like because they, they, they're looking at the score and they're trying to figure out who's responsible for it. And they don't care if it's they're responsible for it through shooting, through passing, through gravity, through, uh, you know, defense, through positioning, through energy, through effort. It, it, it just, it could be all of these intangible things and tangible things that mesh up to say that this player is really impactful and, and causes a team to win at a higher rate. And bottom-up metrics might be like, this person scores a certain number of points, uh, they shoot a, a certain percentage, do they have a certain number of assists. And even when we talk about you know potential assists, things like that, uh, these, these are ways to assess impact, but we don't know the value of each of those independent stats. Um, we don't know how, mu how much points are worth. I mean, we know how, many, how much points are worth. We don't know how much points are worth relative to a replacement player being able to acquire those same points. There's never been a, t a game in the NBA where you know a team hasn't scored. Somebody's going to score points. Now, is that player who's scoring the points, are they adding value above and beyond what a replacement player level player could do? That's what we need to, to, to have these like top-down metrics to figure out, I believe. So um, I think that's a great question. Your rebounding answer, I think, I think goes for me as well. So uh, appreciate it, uh, BKG. 
the craft MBA with just a, a nice donation. Thank you so much. Uh, that is coming from the, the DJ from KFS. Uh, I watched that. I watch the craft videos all the time. <laughs> um, the craft MBA, what is one specific area of the MBA that you hope will one day have better data surrounding it and why? DJ from KFS, we are getting some good questions. These are these are these are really good questions. Um, I shouldn't be surprised. Do you do you have an initial answer that comes to mind, Jeff? I'm trying to buy time so I can think about it. Yeah, because we talk about it every week on our show. Yeah. I want to. <laughs> we do. Do, do you want to <laughs> unveil it? Do you want to unveil it? I'm not going to say it. This is this KFS is your, your class. You know, I don't want Andrew to jump through the screen and be like, "We're never having you on here again." So all of, this is your baby, if you want to. But um, at least describe it. At least describe what we're what we would like to measure. So I think it'd be really interesting to try to account for what percentage of a player's contributions or impact aren't captured by your usage because, and for people who don't know what usage is, usage is basically percentage of possessions that you use that end in a shot an assist or a turnover, I or believe. A turnover, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I think that most superstars are high usage players. I think that's actually really safe to say. Um, and we're kind of being repetitive here, but the more unique player is a low su- low usage or me- medium usage superstar, somebody that can play with a high usage superstar, but doesn't necessarily need the ball in his hands as much. And I feel like those things aren't captured as highly in, they're definitely not captured in the box score, but by the eye test either. And I think it'd be interesting to have something to a resource to be like, okay, this guy's actually doing a lot that we can't see with our eyes. He's he, okay. He's not scoring a lot. He's not getting a lot of assists. He's not getting a lot of rebounds relative to other stars, but there's actually a ton of things that you're not noticing. You know, like I'm going to say the name again. And I just love this next player. Like Emmanuel quickly. When you watch Emmanuel quickly, the reason impact stats love him so much is because his shooting, since he's made his leap, he's basically become a player that, what he shoots doesn't matter. His baseline floor foundation of impact is a plus player pretty much the moment he steps on the floor. And some Knicks fans might hear that and be like, how is that possible? I watched Emmanuel quickly. I've seen him go two for 10. I've seen him go. He's an inconsistent shooter. That's a, that's true. He's not the best passer. Also true. But what he does on the other side of the court, all the things, not even steals and blocks. You've seen Emmanuel quickly stunt and recover. You've seen him do all these things that are very unique to him. The moment he doesn't play, you know, and I know Mitchell Robinson's out too. All of a sudden, there isn't that other free safety on the court. There isn't, you know, somebody gets blown by at the point of attack. Emmanuel quickly is right there stunting, cutting off that drive, making sure the guy doesn't get to the basket. And that's not captured by any stat. There's nothing besides how, the, besides the on-off numbers and the how the team performs with the guy versus how the team performs without him. There's nothing capturing this stunt that makes a guy like Emmanuel quickly or a number of other great defenders unique. And so I wish there was a way to to know. Okay, this guy scores this many points, rebounds, assists. You know, usage. He does all. He does these things from a usage perspective. What percentage of his overall impact is are are those things? I, I would be really interested in that, and I think it would be a good way to tell how truly impactful a player is. Because if you have somebody and you're looking at them, and it's like, okay, they average twenty and eight and five, and then you have this other stat that's like that's a hundred percent of what he's doing. 
There's no intangible things whatsoever. But then you have a guy who's averaging, you know, 19 and seven. But then, but then there's a stat that says, actually, that's only 50% of what he's doing. There's all this stuff that's, that's quietly happening that he's doing to make his teams better. I would be super interested to see that. I'm sure NBA like front offices are trying to capture that in their own way. Um, so yeah, I mean, actually, I don't know what you think. Yeah, oh, I no, do know what you I, think about that, but take that, over. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, that's really well said and, and a great explanation of, of the concept that we've been talking about to, 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 to give you the example is, um, we were talking about this concept on hot hand theory one day. And I was saying, you know, like some guys provide this offensive lubricant, you know, like they, they're just there and they're, they're greasing the wheels and making everything run. And they're, they're providing a lot of intangible impact that way. And Jeff suggested that this is a metric we should create and just call it lube. Um, that is, I suggested is that would happen. Uh, I'm pretty sure we could go back to the film. But. Oh my God. <laughs> I, lo- I, I lost the last replay, so I don't know if I want to go to that. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's a great explanation of it. The, the only other thing I want to say is I would also want to know what players are providing that impact on the offensive end specifically um, without you know, aside from the parts of their impact that are coming from usage, because a lot of these players there, you know, that we're talking about as guys who have a ton of impact, but don't have a high usage. A lot of their impact is coming on the defensive end, but there are a few guys in the league who have a really high offensive impact and have very low usage. A guy that I think of, you know, he's getting up there in age is Mike Conley. Mike Conley has of 15 usage right now, which is in the bottom third of the entire NBA. That is a very low usage for a point guard. Um, you know, in the, in the modern era of the NBA, point guards shoot a lot. Uh, Mike Conley does not, but still has a plus 2.1 offensive EPM, which is in the top 10 percentile in the entire league. I think he's providing a ton of, of, of offensive impact through his passing. He's a very high assist percentage, his shooting. He can catch and shoot really well. He makes his free throws at a really high clip. Um, he is having a really great year this year without very much uses at all. And he's a perfect sidekick right now for Anthony Edwards in the backcourt. So that is a guy I would give a shout out to. Thank you for the question, DJ. I think that was, I think, that was a great I think, question. I uh, think, XJ, the, the, the answer, the best answer for what you're talking about is Steph Curry. Like we could just talk about Steph Curry forever. Like (laughs) there's no reason. And Steph Curry is an otherworldly shooter, but that is only the tip of the iceberg for what he does for teams. And I know, and, and luckily with him, you can at least see it a little bit because every time he steps on the court, he creates a four on three for his teammates. So even intuitively you can download that and be like, okay, like they get an advantage every time he steps on the court because the defense just doesn't want him shooting a three. But it would be very interesting to be able to 100% accurately figure out just how big an impact Steph Curry stepping on the court has for an offense, even when he's not shooting well. Yep, that is the that is the 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 impact god, Steph Curry. Um, Dirty Dancer, what do you think of the Halliburton MVP case? If the Pacers can get a top three seed, um, shout out Dirty Dancer, uh, you know, a great mod for KFS. Uh, always killing it uh, in the chat. Dirty Dancer, a top three seed for the Pacers. If the if the Pacers get a top three seed, Hallen Burns the MVP in my opinion. I I don't know that I would say he. I mean, probably I would always. Gonna, I'm just always going to end up saying it's Jokic because he you know he just always is. But if the Pacers get a top three seed, that narrative will, I believe, push Halliburton into 
firmly into the MVP. Uh, I just don't think the Pacers, who do the Pacers have? The Pacers do not have a strong team around Tyrese Halliburton. Um, you know, who is their second best player? It's really hard to say. Some nights it's, it's Obi Toppin. Some nights it's Bruce Brown. Some nights it's Miles Turner. But these guys are not necessarily consistent, strong, uh, you know, great players that bring it every night and that we think of as as star level players or all star level players or even sub all star level players. So if Halliburton is is elevating those guys to the extent that the Pacers get a top three seed in the East, I think he's going to win the MVP. What do, what do you think, Jeff? Yeah, that's that's my answer to if, if he gets if the Pacers are a top three seed, it means Halliburton is playing like the best player in the NBA. Um, at least a huge percentage of the time. I don't, what other Matherin makes a leap, I guess. Like what, what other, what, what path to a top three seed do they, do they have besides Halliburton is just playing at a, like a God like level. I don't, I don't see. So I think, uh, I think what I would, I would be curious to you, XJ, what is the lowest seed the Pacers could be where you'd consider Halliburton for the MVP? You know, that's a great question. Yeah, go ahead. Well, because right now, I mean, he leads the NBA in offensive EPM. Um, I mean, EPM is telling us that they think that no player is more impactful on the offensive side of the of of offensive side of the court than Tyrese Halliburton. Um, his defense is a negative. I think that's been well covered. Tyrese Halliburton is not a good defender. He needs to improve there. Um, but I mean, what if the Pacers were a four seed or a five seed? Of course, you're just going to look at the data and try to figure that out for yourself. But I do think it's interesting to try and figure out, you know, what 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 does Halliburton need to do realistically to get into MVP discussions? It's a great question. And I think I think there's too much competition for him to make it less than a top four seat, like lower than a top four seat. I think he was in the, the second half of the bracket in the East. And and they don't have a home, they don't have home court in the first round. I just think there's too much competition. We're talking. I mean, the guy you mentioned, SGA, is going to firmly be in that conversation. Jokic is obviously going to be in that conversation. Embiid is going to be in that conversation. LeBron James may be in that conversation. Uh, LeBron James having an absolutely incredible year so far and uh, has only missed one game so far. So I just think there's too much competition. I think the right now, the MVP race is between those five guys, in my opinion, maybe Steph Curry on the outside looking in, maybe Luca on the outside looking in. But yeah, I just, I just think he has to have a top four seat to even have a chance. Top three, I think, locks it up for him because just I'm just imagining, like you said, what would have to happen to give the Pacers a top three seat in the East, um, you know, putting them probably over a team like Philadelphia, obviously over the Knicks. I, I think that he would have to have an incredible, you have to maintain this offensive impact and probably pick it up on the defensive end a little bit, which would make him potentially a runaway MVP candidate. So I, I think it's a great question. What if they're the six seed, but he averages a triple double? Would that change your mind? <laughs> would that change my mind or would that change the voters' minds? <laughs> uh, it's a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Can oh, I jump in, guys? GMAC! Please well, howdy, fellas. First of all, Jeff, I got the Westbrook reference that you just made, so bravo there. <laughs> and can I offer a counter that even if Halliburton gets a three seed, does it have to also matter what the Thunder finish? Because right now, they're the two seed in the West. Mm. And SGA, you talk about offensive EPM. How about the guy that has the highest EPM? So yeah. doesn't it also matter? Like he would also have to fall off a cliff because I, I I would argue he's the front runner if you're going by the advanced metrics. No? 
Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's a really good point. I do think that if the season ended today and the Pacers were the three seed and the Thunder were the two seed, I have a hard time believing it wouldn't come down to those two guys. And I don't know where XJ stands. My assumption is that the Pacers right now are so far away from being able to be a three seed. Like they, they are one to two standard deviations away from a chance at being a three seed. The East is actually pretty tough and it's deep for the Pacers to end up as the three seed. Halliburton has to make like a leap. (laughs) And if he makes the leap required for them to be the three seed, I have to assume that he, he would not only lead the NBA and EPM, but it would just be overwhelming how much better he is performing this season than anybody else, including SGA. Yeah, I think it's a great point by you, GMAC. I, I I feel the same way that Jeff just said. So I think right now SGA is in is a two seed and has the highest EPM in the game and probably would be the MVP if we we stop the season right now. But for the Pacers to ascend to a top three seed, like Halliburton would have to, like I said, maintain this offense and improve his defense and the Pacers would have to go on a crazy run. And it would be an amazing story like with his story as far as his performance in the in-season tournament and bouncing back from that and then getting even better. And the Pacers, I just, it's just an incredible narrative. I just find that hard to believe that, you know, SGA and, and, and OKC have had a really good story and narrative up until this point. Clearly, OKC has much better teammates than... Uh, I mean, SGA has much better teammates than Tyrese Halliburton does. I think that's pretty clear when we talk about the few guys that we mentioned. Didn't even talk about uh, uh, J-Dub as well. So yeah, I, I think it's a it's a compelling case. But I think if somehow the Pacers made it to top three in the East, that would be a gauntlet. And I think that'd be an incredible story. So I, I, I know that... I know that goes into the MVP race, uh, Andrew. If, you know, if you want to come back up here for that, <laughs> GMAC you got to find out um, or got to experience me finding out how much, how important narrative is into the voters' opinions about who becomes MVP and who does not. And it, I had me distraught, as you know very well, uh, Andrew. I'd argue it's the most important thing that goes into voters' decisions, which is why this is fun, the Halliburton against SGA conversation we're having. Um, the MVP as of right now is LeBron James, based off of how voters are going to yeah. look at this season. We haven't had a chance to give him a fifth. Well, here we go, LeBron. At 40 <laughs> years old, here's your fifth. Now go take a night off to go watch your son play basketball. <laughs> I love that. Go take a night off to watch your son. He's like, yeah, to be honest with you guys, y'all gonna have to lose that night because they will lose if LeBron doesn't play. Sorry to say. Um, Do you want to grab the the Knicks tape comment up there, Jeff? Sure. This is one of my good friends uh, in Knicks Twitterverse. Big fan of Knicks tape. Um, He does awesome work on Twitter. Uh, Of course, I have to lead with an RJ Knicks question. Are the numbers to prove that the Knicks perform better when RJ takes art? Are there numbers to prove that the Knicks perform better when RJ takes 20 or more shots? Feels like the Knicks fare pretty well when he does extra. That's an interesting question. So I don't know that offhand. Obviously, that's something that we can see empirically whether it's true or not. Um, At the same time, even if that were the case, I would say that would just demonstrate that there's a correlation, but not a causal effect. And so we might see that, let's say the Knicks are performed better when RJ takes 20 or more shots. 
we would still need a lot more and different types of evidence to say that the Knicks perform better because RJ takes 20 or more shots. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that we see that correlation. We, we were talking about this earlier as well. RJ is currently, you know, at a, a, a high, a career high usage in his entire career. He's at 27.6% usage. That is his career high. His 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 closest was uh just under twenty seven. He is ninety second percentile in the NBA in usage, so he's getting a ton of shots regardless. I don't know if there's a correlation between like twenty specifically, but that would be interesting to set to see. And then we would have to try to do more more digging to understand if like that is somehow responsible for the Knicks winning or or has how much impact that has on whether the Knicks win or not. So I'm going to turn into just a watcher because I actually have a follow-up question for you, Akshay, in terms of causality versus correlation. Forget how it impacts the Knicks because I agree. Uh, what you just said makes perfect sense to me. There's no way of knowing if you know RJ taking 21 shots versus RJ taking 16 shots, if those extra five shots, if the Knicks would have been worse off had somebody else taken those extra five shots. There's just It's really, really hard to capture that. But what if you were to look at data that told you RJ or any player, like on games, he takes 20 or more shots. His efficiency is this. And on games, he takes 15 or less shots or or, I don't know why I went to 15, but under 20 shots, his efficiency is less. Would you say then it would be fair to say that, oh, actually, I think we're looking at the numbers and it's clear that this guy actually prefers to have a higher volume shot diet and he's more comfortable when he's the main engine? Or is that just more correlation versus causality on an individual basis? Yeah, I think that's still correlations versus causation for me because... I mean, it could be the case that RJ takes more shots when he feels like he has it going, right? So, like he he does what he does better when he takes more shots, not because he's taking more shots, but he's taking more shots because he's doing better. You know, like the it could be the opposite effect, and there's just really no way to to, to identify that without like a huge sample of uh, of, of RJ Barrett doing this over the course of his career. And then being able to really crunch the numbers that way. I think the other aspect is it's interesting to have this like threshold number. So we're saying like 15 or 20. Um, I would probably need to see that like there is some kind of uh, linear uh, pattern that we see as the sh- his shot attempts continue to elevate. So does his efficiency. So something like that, some kind of like relationship that we see with an in- increased number of shots uh, as opposed to like a benchmark threshold of like 20 shots or more. He's this player, 15 shots or less. He's this player that that probably would be a little more fishy to me. And 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 I would ha- I would give it less weight. Like if I, we saw this correlation, like as he takes more shots, his efficiency increases. That would be something I would pay a lot closer attention to. Yeah, but did you know? That when teams run the ball 20 or more times in the second half, they win 95% of the time. Can you please tell the Mike McCarthy story for, 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 for those who haven't heard it? Yeah, it's just too funny. It's, it's short. It's short. When Mike McCarthy was interviewed or he did a press conference one time and he said that he saw a stat that teams win 95% of the time when they run the ball 20 or more times in the second half. So his goal was to run the ball 20 or more times in the second half, which is, oh my goodness, that is, that's no good. <laughs> we love, we love the story because obviously the, the, the punchline is 
the teams are running the ball 20 or more times in the second half is because they're winning the game already. <laughs> they're trying to kill the clock. They're running the ball to, 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 to get it over with, run the clock down and end it. And McCarthy, you know, this is a, a, a such a great example of mistaking correlation for causation uh, because McCar- the way that McCarthy thought about it is, well, I could be down three touchdowns or four touchdowns. All I need to do is run the ball 20 times and, and magically we will take the lead somehow. So uh, really funny that a, a professional head coach at the, at the highest level of, of competition um, made that mistake. But to be honest, it's an easy mistake to make. And, and all of us you know, make the same kind of mistake in our daily lives. And I could come up with examples, but we should probably move to the next question. But it's a funny story. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I just wanted you to tell it. By the way, um, I, first of all, I love all anti Mike McCarthy stories, and I cannot wait to see how this Cowboy season crashes and burns eventually. <laughs> um, just some quick math to to Nick's takes question. Um, the, I don't know if this answers fully, but did the quick deep dive of RJ game logs. The Knicks are twenty five and thirty in his career when he takes at least twenty five shots. Uh, excuse me, at least twenty shots in a game. Tw- so. Twenty five and thirty, not twenty five of thirty, right? No, no, no. They have 25 wins, 30 losses okay, okay, okay. in the gotcha, 55 gotcha, gotcha. games that gotcha. RJ has okay. taken at least 20 shots. So quick. I, d- I do think I do think that a thing with RJ that goes kind of underrated and we touch on our pod. There's this insinuation a lot of times in Nick Twitter that he doesn't get the ball enough or that he doesn't shoot enough. He gets the ball and shoots a lot. Um, that's what he does. Sometimes more successful than not. Um, and I want to say that from a film perspective, I sympathize with people who are like, well, yeah, but his role is different than Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle because they're more proactive and RJ due to being the third option is kind of forced to be more reactive. I get that. I get the nuances and the differences in their touches. I just want to kind of not kind of, I want to fully um, exonerate that and, and remove the notion that he's being frozen out of the offense. He is the highest usage on the team. Um, right. Is that still true? He has a higher usage than Jalen Brunson and a slightly lower usage than Julius Randall. Very close okay. between Randall and second, Barrett. Second highest usage on the team. Um, he's getting his touches and can, can the Knicks do more to make his touches more efficient? Sure. But there is plenty in his power to make the most of. And, you know, whether he does or doesn't is, yeah, I, th- I think it falls on him more yep. often than not. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. Frank, this is a KFS initiation, so I have to ask this. Why do you hate RJ Barrett? <laughs> <laughs> I Perfect. don't. Do do I have the power to bring Andrew back up on? Yes, the, you do. I do. Um, <laughs> no, I do. I did that. I hit the wrong button. You did. <laughs> no, no, no. I was I was genuinely asking if I do the John thing, and I was like, Andrew, let's get Andrew, you back up, up here, here. If, yeah. if you would listen, or if you would just be like, nah, that's that's a John thing. I don't know if you saw today, but you were kind of vindicated in the, in the, yes, you were vindicated. So for people, uh, I have a very weird memory. I remember a lot of things very specifically. And one of my favorite moments of last season was Andrew listening to John very, very nicely congratulate Malcolm Brogdon for winning sixth man of the year before Andrew hopped on was like, all right, enough of this. Like we're, we're done being nice. We're doing, we're, we're, I'm sick of this shit. And he was like, we're, we've had enough of this. And you said, if I recall correctly, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You said something along the lines of if somebody from a different team, whether it was a small market or a Boston level team, 
did what Emmanuel quickly did, this wouldn't be close. This would the narrative would be about his impact, his on off. Nobody would talk about it. Well, one of the Boston writers who voted for Malcolm Brogdon wrote a piece today on his six man of the year. And for six man of the year, he voted Isaiah Joe and he named him the on off God. <laughs> and he cited only the on off data for why Isaiah Joe, who right now is plus 20,000 plus 20,000 on betting sites to win six man of the year. But he was like, correctly, by the way, Isaiah Joe deserves all the love. I, I don't think this is wrong, but for him to a year after being like, oh, yeah, it's Malcolm Brogdon because counting stats, you know, six months later, be like, actually, we're going to look at the on off data now. And this is who I think I just I, I immediately thought of you going this on your rant disgusting. and doing your Boston Tea Party stuff. And I love that. <laughs> Shout out to whoever that was. Um Thank you for the vindication. <laughs> and we're still not over it. So shout out to you and vengeance will be ours. Hey there, Knicks fans. Quick break to tell you about HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you'll get farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. You know I like my stats, so I got some stats here for you. Good food is too precious to waste. HelloFresh's pre-proportioned ingredients cut down on your food waste by at least 23% compared to grocery shopping, which is good for your wallet and the planet. And if you're looking for more ways to save this spring, HelloFresh is cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% cheaper than takeout. 25%, that's a lot. I love HelloFresh. I love not only the taste of the meals, but I love the fact that I could have two kids literally hanging off me as I am cooking and I'm still able to follow the recipes and make meals that are exactly as advertised. If you want to experience HelloFresh too, don't hesitate. Go to HelloFresh.com slash filmschoolfree and use code Film school free for free breakfast for life. You did not mishear me. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash film school free and use code film school free for free breakfast for life. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. What's up, Knicks fans? Quick break to tell you about AG1. AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs, such as gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to evaluate your baseline health. Fun fact, I recommended AG1 to all my friends, family, and Mrs. Claudio. We drink AG1 first thing in the morning, to make sure we have the energy needed to take on a busy day. There's no debate. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash filmschool. That's drink. That's drinkag1.com slash filmschool. Cool. Check it out. Uh, a couple <laughs> more questions before you get you guys out of here. Let's do it. Let's do it. Lucas Kimball. What are the mo- uh, the stats most correlated with wins and losses? Really interesting. Um, example, net rating, point differential, team effective field goal percentage, etc. Um, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it's net rating. Um, I think 
that is clearly the most correlated with wins and losses from a team perspective. I thought you were going to ask Lucas like uh, a player, individual player stat, which I would have no idea what the answer is there. But yeah, from a team perspective, it's definitely net rating. I mean, they they do have uh, uh, expected wins and losses based on net rating. And we do see every year, obviously, teams don't hit exactly what their expected wins and losses are based on their net rating. But they're generally pretty close. Uh, you know, teams can get really bad luck. I would also add, when I say net rating, uh, there are a couple different kinds of net rating. So there are there's just raw net rating. Um, there's net rating that filters out garbage time, like what you might see on cleaning cleaning the glass. There's net rating that uh, looks at strength of schedule. So it might account for the fact that you know different teams have different strengths of schedule and, and one team might might have a gauntlet of a season in terms of the teams that they have to play based on their division and their conference and just how their you know how their 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 schedule played out and one team might just have a really easy schedule so there are net ratings that look at strength of schedule and there are also net ratings that look at uh, a luck adjustment so luck adjustment Oftentimes, it's really about shooting. Um, something that we've seen from long a long time of data crunching is that three point shooting defense is like you can't really stop a team from shooting a certain percentage from three. It, this sounds crazy, but we have seen over and over through various data crunching, um, through huge huge sample sizes, that it there is a limited amount that a team can do to stop a team from shooting a high percentage from three. There's definitely things you can do. You can obviously close out. You can obviously run teams off the line. But as far as three-point shooting, it is up to variance a lot of times. And sometimes teams may play and just get really on the bad side of the luck when it comes to three-point shooting from their opponents. Um, so there are net ratings that that look at those luck qualities and adjust for them. So there are a bunch of different kinds of net ratings. I'm not sure which are more correlated with wins and losses. If I had to guess, I would probably say luck-adjusted net ratings. Um, but because it, the, the the factors that make there be a disparity between net rating and wins and losses are typically luck. So that would be my guess. But yeah, that was probably a super long-winded and more detailed answer than was necessary here. But yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add, Jeff. I just want to um, debunk something about net rating compared to win-loss. And I'm pretty sure you're going to disagree with me. I think this is going to be our... I think this is going to be a point of contention. And I, so I'm just curious to get a, a short response from you about this. Pythag win-loss, is, which is adjusted uh, win-loss, which is based on things like point differential and net, net rating. In my opinion, what one thing that it underrates is it underrates the skill element of close games. And so... There's an insinuation that, you know, if an example would be in 2021, 2022, everybody remembers that super lovely Knicks team that was a ton of fun to watch. And we definitely weren't trying to pull our hair out that entire season as, you know, Alec Burke started at point guard and <laughs> all, all that fun stuff. The Knicks had a 37 and 45 record. Their Pythag win loss record was 41 and 41. That's telling us that the Knicks were quote unquote unlucky. The Knicks were should have won four more games. I'm of the opinion that anybody who watched that season knows they weren't unlucky late in those close games. And that through a combination of suboptimal managing and coaching and just playing bad down the stretch of games, there's only so much coaching coach can do. The players were not good in the, at the end of those games either. Um, the Knicks lost those games. And the best example that I have is if you look at the teams that Dirk Nowinski was on, 
and compare them to the teams that Dwight Howard was the best player on, the Dallas Mavericks were something like 20 games over their Pythag at Dirk's peak, which means that they won, you know, across 10 seasons, 20 plus more games than they were supposed to. The Magic were the polar opposite. They ended up during Dwight's peak losing, you know, 10, 15. I forget how many I've done the numbers before. More than expected. And so if you were just blindly looking at net ratings and you were side-by-siding these two teams these during these two stretches, you would say to yourself, okay, well, they were kind of similar and the Mavericks were lucky and the Magic were unlucky. But it, it makes perfect sense that the Mavericks would outperform their expectation in, in close games and the Magic wouldn't because the Magic's best player was an elite defender who couldn't create his own shot and the Mavericks' best player was an elite offensive engine who could get a, a high floor shot whenever he wanted to. So I think these are things you want to factor in before just blindly asserting things like luck into the conversation when you're looking at win-loss and comparing it to net rating. Um, I don't know what you think of that, actually. Yeah, I, I actually think that's a I think that's a totally valid point. I, I guess when you would do this luck adjustment, it is not to disqualify that factor, but I think it would be just more closely correlated with wins and losses, right? So like that that is to, like to the point of the question. I think that luck adjustment would make it even closer. I think net ratings are already really close and luck adjusted net ratings would be closer correlated with wins and losses. But of course, there's still going to be a factor like the one that you suggest, which I actually think is more of an outlier factor. Like I think that is rare that there's a team that just performs much better than they should consistently in the clutch situations. Like I don't think that's that happens very often. I also think it's rare that there's a team that performs way below what you would expect to see from them in clutch situations as well. And it can be due to, you know, the the player type or the players that they have um, or the coaching that they have. Both things can 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 be a factor in that 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 conversation. But I just think that doesn't happen very often. If it does, like you just mentioned, you said that the Mavericks performed 20 wins above what their expectation would be across 10 years. So we're talking two extra wins a year, which is a lot. But the fact that that's what we're seeing and, you know, I, I, I it doesn't seem like a huge difference in terms of um, what we might expect to be correlate, correlated with um, net rating. So I think it's a totally a factor. I think it's valid. But if you had one shot, would you have Steph Curry or Andre Iguodala? <laughs> I'm taking Iguodala. That's yeah. what I have to say. <laughs> uh, me and my stupid references. I got to get it. <laughs> I got to say, I love Max Kellerman though. I got to, I got to be honest. Max Kellerman is, is great. I think he's, he's, I, I feel bad that he's not ESPN anymore. Hopefully we see Max and Marcellus come back one day. Uh, BKG and working on a multifactorial defensive evaluation metric. I, I recall what conventional defensive outcome metrics would you suggest I regress against for psychometric testing? Uh, this is tough. Defensive outcome metrics. Um, I mean, we know like historically defensive metrics are not very good um, for the most part. I, I, I think, I mean, obviously it would have to be a, 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 a top-down defensive metric because there are no metrics that you can build from the ground up. There aren't enough box score data checkpoints for defense that you can actually build a functional defensive metric that indicates, you know, who's having what kind of impact. I mean, what do we have to, to go by on defense? We have, we have uh, essentially steals blocks. And I mean, what do we have? Like 
what are other <laughs> I don't even know what other like defensive I mean, statistics there, there are. There are like advanced defensive stat statistics that are way too heavily based on right um team performance, you know, like defensive win shares and oh my god, defensive rating, which is terrible. If I see one more person cite individual defensive rating on Twitter, I'm just gonna I don't know. I'm going to leave yeah. the, the, the app. That's don't do that, folks. Please don't don't use individual defensive rating. It is a it is not an individual statistic. If you want to, if you really want to use defensive rating and you want it to be useful at all, look at the team's defensive rating when the player plays versus when what it is when they don't play. That's still very far from perfect, but at least it's a starting point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously I totally agree. So I think we have a long way to go as far as like defensive metrics. And I'm really excited about what you're working on BKG. Um, I know it's going to be awesome. And I'd love to love to see it when, uh, when you, when you got something up and running one you're day, you're going to beat us to lube. So <laughs> I, damn it. I was about to go there. I was going to say D lube is going to be great. D lube is, is hilarious. I don't know why that's such low hanging fruit. I don't know how we missed it. D lube is going to be the biggest metric, the biggest metric in the world. One day you'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the classic. And on that Uh, note, (laughs) (laughs) Um, do I got to sign us out of here, Andrew? Yes, sir. Thank you all for tuning in. We really appreciate all the questions. Uh, you know, we really appreciate KFS for giving us at Hot Hand Theory the opportunity to have this math class to 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 go into the deep data dive with you all. Um, it was super fun. It flew by. I hope you all had a good time and enjoyed us going into the numbers a little bit. Um, uh, please like this video. Please subscribe to Nick's Film School. I, obviously, I XJ am on Nick's Film School all over the place. Casual Fridays. You can catch us. Um, you know, with Mensa and Sean, if you're listening to the KFS podcast feed later, please leave a five star rating and review. And, um, yeah, Jeff, do you want to plug hot hand theory? Because I, I think I do it all the time and I, I, I take everything that you want to say. So do you, do you want to talk a little bit about hot hand theory before we jump out of here? Yeah. I just want to say that the support we've gotten from everybody has been so overwhelming. You know, we started hot hand theory barely, not even two months ago. and you know, me and actually don't really care about things like followers or people. I mean, of course that's, you know, that's part of this, but at the end of the day, when I sent XJ a message uh, earlier this year, the whole point was like, I was like, we think kind of similarly, I would love to just talk basketball with you each week, I, I think. And, you know, talk about the data and he was super psyched about it too. And turns out we get along really well, which is awesome. And, you know, we find every single week that we're like, dude, we just have to stop talking to each other. We, we can't, we have, we can't keep dragging this out. Um, but we had some goals for this season and some of them were, you know, 500 followers on Twitter. We've already eclipsed that. Um, so I just want to say, you know, if you want to be a part of this journey, if you enjoyed listening to us today, you know, follow us, we're hot hand theory everywhere, which is very weird that that was available everywhere, but <laughs> like somehow in 2023, we were the first ones who did that. But um, yeah, we're, I mean, we're high hand theory on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Twitter. You know, if you liked what you heard today, we're doing everything. And yes, we talk a lot of Knicks, but you know, the Knicks play all 29 other teams at least twice a year. And something that I've been really enjoying from this, cause I do a film 
session about the Knicks opponents uh, almost every week. I've just really enjoyed getting to know the other teams, you know, feeling like I'm prepared when the Knicks play these certain teams. So if that's something that interests you, if you like the prospect of mixing data with film and just sort of learning about the other players, becoming a part of the discussion, literally there has not been a YouTube comment that me or actually haven't responded to yet. Like we, we are very excited to just have conversations with good faith people who want to have we're just trying to be a positive force in the Twitterverse, and there's so many, so much good Knicks content. I find it impossible to believe that there's another team with yeah. I find it impossible to believe that there is another team with more positive content. And so while we do talk about the Knicks, we're just trying to be a positive force for the whole, um, for the whole community and atmosphere in general. So if that's something that suits you, yeah, follow Hot Hand Theory, and we really appreciate you. Hell yeah, Jeff! Thank you guys. Thanks, Andrew. 